Well, good morning, church family. Let me try that again. Good morning, church family. Thank you. I think I even heard people online. That was nice. Well, for those that don't know me, um, or maybe you're busy with us today, so first, welcome if you are. I'm John Klobuchar. I'm not one of the pastors here, but what I am privileged to do is I serve with Barry Chaplains. Uh, I serve there as a full-time chaplain at the Contra Costa County Jails. Um, my wife and Cindy, I have attended here uh, at Clayton Valley Church for about eight years. Both of us retired from the Coast Guard with four children. Now, next month, we're going to be welcoming our third grandchild. This weekend, we happen to have... Oh, yes, that's worthy. Uh, We actually have our grandchildren with us. That's where my wife is, because our two-year-old granddaughter did not sleep so well last night. So if I start to nod off up here, Chris has promised to throw... What do you have with you? A beanbag? Something? Splash me with water. Don't don't dunk me. Um, That should be a good joke in a Baptist church. What's that? Okay, thank you. Um, But in all seriousness, from the silliness to the sublime here, today we're going to pick up in the book of Hosea, and specifically we'll be looking at chapter 4. Now I want to make a promise here with the kids in our service that uh, much of what chapter 4, well, a lot of what Hosea talks about is not quite PG, but I'm going to keep my language as PG as possible. So when you hear me reference temple activities, uh, it's a little bit more than that, but just to let you know that... Um, but that's important. This is God's words revealed to us. And um, the things that they were involved in um, uh, were quite egregious. Now, so from, for some background, both Pastor Chris and Eric covered these over the last couple of weeks, at least some of this. If we begin back in the book of Exodus, we read the history of Israel's miraculous rescue from their over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God, who Israel referred to by the covenant name Yahweh, and I will do my best to use this term in balance with God. It's, it distinguishes him from what we see in the book of Hosea, what we see in the Old Testament, the, 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 the gods that, that the people thought were gods that weren't really. And Yahweh was, was the name given to distinguish him. If you remember the story to Moses, he revealed himself as the I am who am. And simply Yahweh means it's referring back to him as he is. He is God. He is the one who is... Um, without beginning, he is uncreated, he's unrivaled amongst these gods that are being created, quite frankly, in the, in the image of, of, of the people, um, um, the people who are rebelling against God. And to speak for Yahweh, the only true God is Hosea, is his prophetic mission. He's speaking for God, he's been called by God to be his mouthpiece. And it is the I am who rescued the people of Israel from slavery. It is the I am Yahweh who has taken a personal interest by revealing his identity in the midst of a culture where what they believed about the gods is you can't trust them, you can't know them. You, um, and quite frankly, these are made-up entities. But instead, the I am Yahweh is the one who has taken them through the wilderness to the foot, foot of Mount Sinai after God not only confronted but defeated the gods of Egypt and taking his people to a place from where the worship of these gods so that he can commit himself to the people of Israel by establishing his unique relationship uh, through Moses. But like we have seen in the first three chapters of Hosea, where God, his prophet, is 
called, called to marry a woman that he knows will be unfaithful. He makes this, this decision, knowing this woman will be unfaithful by, um, uh, by God's will. Yahweh has already committed himself as the husband um, of a people who he knew hearts are prone to infidelity, who he knows will stray. And here Hosea now understands what this is like. You know, the wilderness story of, of Israel, if you remember that, you see this in Exodus 15 through 18, is often um, explained to us as that's, that's his courtship of Israel. He's, he's marrying Israel. He's becoming the husband of Israel. This is the language of the Old Testament, the picture that we're giving. Um, and it's that they might trust, they place their trust in the very God who has been faithful and committing himself to them is, is their call, yet they fail. Uh, Psalm 78 summarizes much of this experience, and I'm going to begin reading verse 21. We will get to Hosea 4 shortly. Therefore Yahweh heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat. He gave them food from heaven, man ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He made the east wind blow in the sky, and by his power he directed the, the south wind. When he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sands of the seas, he let them fall into the midst of their camp and all around their dwellings. So they ate and were filled, and he satisfied their longing. So as we continue our look at the book Hosea, we are in the 8th century B.C., Israel split into two kingdoms, and this is roughly 400 years after they come to the place of Mount Sinai. Now we're on the verge of the northern kingdom of Israel, also here referred to Ephraim, entering exile, and about 150 years before Judah, the southern kingdom, will go into exile. Now all of Israel will eventually go into exile for failing to abide by the covenant Yahweh has graciously established with them. The covenant where they were chosen by Yahweh to go into the land, to be his holy nation. As we read in Exodus 19.6, they were selected as a priesthood to represent God to the nations, to be distinct people, to bring about the promise of Abraham to bless nations. But with that, we're going to turn to our text in Hosea 4, so turn there now if you have your Bibles open. Click there. Um, I'm clicking there today. I do have my physical Bible with me, but I'll be clicking there, so... And here in chapter 4, our specific time frame and context is a little bit more specific, is likely is what we see in 2 Kings uh, 16, also see in 2 Chronicles 28, Isaiah 7. There's a war that's waged. Israel and Syria attack Judah. And more broadly and generally, Israel has taken their prosperity. They use it as an opportunity for selfish gain on idolatry. As Eric pointed out last week, the northern kingdom has literally rejected the covenant promise made with King David by splitting the kingdom and committing themselves to the worship of the gods of the other nations, other than Yahweh, um, even calling them by God's covenant name, and then also referring to Yahweh by the name Baal. And this is in the land God has given them to displace, replace the same idolatry. And to commit ourselves to God's word, please stand. I'll be looking, I will not be reading the whole chapter, I'll read verses 1 through 10. I'm going to be looking at NASB. Um, I'm going to be replacing the word Lord in all caps with Yahweh. And as we read, once again, keep in mind that here's Hosea, now speaking for Yahweh, 
and he has a perspective of a loving husband rejected for at least one other man. He has reclaimed his wife, even pain to receive her back. And this is what we read, beginning in verse 1. Listen to the word of Yahweh, O sons of Israel. For Yahweh has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes. Along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet let no one find fault and let none offer reproof, for your people are like those who contend with the priests. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest, since you have forgotten the law of your God. I will forget your children. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desires towards their iniquity. And I will be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not have enough. They will play the harlot, but not increase, because they have stopped giving heed to Yahweh. Pray with me. God, these heavy words of Hosea 4, God, they seemingly lack hope. They seemingly lack directions towards you keeping your promises. Yet, God, as we know and as we will talk about, you do keep your promises, God. How amazing your promises are, God. And help us realize, God, this is us. This is us without your intervention, without your choice to make yourself known to us. Help us today, God, as we think on this and your amazing, amazing love that we find in your promise field in Jesus Christ. For your sake we pray, amen. Please be seated. So once again, think think about Hosea as God's prophet. In, in a very dynamic way, he gets it now. He's personally experienced what Yahweh experiences. He understands perhaps better than any of his contemporaries the, the fidelity of Yahweh amidst the infidelity of, of the people of God because he loves a woman who is known for her infidelity, for her unfaithfulness. And here in chapter 4, while the language that we have in front of us, it's, it is legal, it's quite legal, giving us a sense of charges, being levied in a, in a courtroom. Uh, we also get the sense we're sitting before a judge and, 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 and charges are being brought up and judgment is being brought up and uh, the consequences are being brought up. That's irrefutable. But at the same time, this is personal from Yahweh. Here the word that is often translated as case or charge or controversy, it's, it's the word rib in, in Hebrew. Um, it absolutely has a sense of being brought, again, before a judge to answer charges. But keep our context in mind. This is through a chosen prophet who gets Yahweh's predicament against his people personally because of his experience with his unfaithful wife. You know, as the scene of Hosea speaking to Israel opens, you'll recognize a, um, a key word there that it begins with, hear or listen. 
That's the Hebrew word shema. Um, it's, it's here, it's a command to, to listen, and it's, it's, it's much more than that. It has the, the idea of listen to respond, listen to obey, listen to repent. Also here we see inhabitants of the land. Now this implies that all of Israel is here to listen. They are all here uh, under this charge. And now there's, a, there's probably an unspoken few, and, and Hosea himself uh, clearly being one that are uh, a remnant, but the overwhelming rebellion of all of Israel is called to account for their idolatry, their failure to worship Yahweh exclusively and behave according to his character. Now here, the most central, the most central accusation of verse 1 is that Yahweh's case against Israel is the lack of true knowledge of God. Have you ever told someone or perhaps questioned by someone, do you really know me? Husbands? I have a confession to make. There was one Valentine's Day. I checked before, with my wife before this. She said, oh, yeah, you can share that. Now, no one was hurt in this episode. Balloons were popped. Um, I thought that would get a laugh. <laughs> um, but it was on me. It was on me. I, I don't remember all the details. It was relatively early in our marriage. At least I want to say that. I, I actually don't remember the year. But rightly, my wife could have said, does he really know me? In all seriousness, she could have questioned that. I'm just, I just, I can't remember if I forgot. I can't remember if I didn't care. I can't remember what it was. But she could rightly ask, do you really know me? By the way, this story, if you want more details about it, ask me, not Cindy. I'm just kidding. Back then, I, I you know, I, again, I take the main hit for it, and, and you, can, you, can, you can ask us about it. It's, it's, it's a relatively benign story but anyway for for disclosure that that was a really long time ago um and again ask cindy if you want to know more about that anyway here are the the hebrew word the noun is da'at it it means knowledge and some of your translation actually might have acknowledgement uh it has the same root idea as the hebrew root yada chris talked about that a couple weeks ago and it applies much more than just knowledge. It's not less than knowledge. It's not less than knowing God, knowing who he is, being able to um, recite his attributes, being able to even talk about his will. But it comes down to it has to do about really knowing someone. This is why our context is within Hosea, within Hosea has this picture for us of Hosea and, and, his, uh, and his wife, his unfaithful wife. And like Yahweh, Hosea has committed to know Gomer, but Gomer does not know, know uh, at least acts like he de- she does not know Hosea. And, the, and this type of knowledge of God that should result in fidelity, instead faithless, you know, faithlessness is lacking and faith is lacking and evident in Israel's failure to acknowledge Yahweh in true worship. Their lack of knowledge leads to faithlessness and their inability to worship Yahweh as he ought to. Now one of the... Um, uh, most famous incidents in all of uh, um, Israel's history is the golden calf story in Exodus. Amazingly, though, is it's within the context of the uh, golden calf um, story is where um, Yahweh graciously relents from utterly destroying Israel. When, when um, Moses intervenes for Israel, God's, God's character, and he reveals his character, this is where we have actually the most uh, cited verses in the whole Bible. The, when the Bible refers to it, Self again, it refers more than any other place to Exodus 34. In verses 6 or 9, we read, 
Then Yahweh passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. The key here is that Israel's lack of knowledge and resulting infidelity is evident because they do not act in a way that honors, reflects God's own character. Here Israel lacks the very qualities Yahweh expressed about himself as we just read. Loving kindness is a key here. Uh, it is used here as, um, as, as central to the accusation. Um, here in, in, in the NSB, it was translated compassion. Other ones you'll see loving kindness. Um, it carries with it more the idea of um, uh, uh, loyalty, loyal love. It's the word hesed in Hebrew. It might be best translated, again, as loyal love. And, and this is what Israel lacks along with their faithfulness to Yahweh. They're not reflecting the same loyal love Yahweh is, is showing and has shown to them. Where Yahweh has shown loyal love, hesed, in his own compassionate commitment to Israel, doing his part in maintaining faithfulness towards Israel, one author actually aptly um, says that hesed is, is really the essence of the covenant relationship God has established. The foundation is God's loyal love. Without it, the covenant ends at Mount Sinai. In other words, God's loyal love is the quality of faithfulness that guarantees God's favor. But Israel lacks this understanding and does not show it um, amongst one another. But to put this positively, and this is an important reflection point, if we really knew the extent of God's faithfulness and loyal love, sin and idolatry just would not exist. If this is not the case, and Israel's faith faithlessness plays out in its specific transgressions that we see in verses 2. These charges of swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery, they are crimes committed in community. They are the fruit of the lack of faith and loyal love rooted in not knowing God. Here the charge of swearing most likely carries more the idea of falsely bearing the name of Yahweh. And it begs the question, do they have the faintest idea who Yahweh is? I think the answer is no. The phrase bloodshed upon bloodshed is also interesting. It literally means bloodshed touches bloodshed. It has the idea of an unrelenting, sinful culture that instead of being appalled, repelled at grave and destructive sin, they actually relish in it. Then the resulting curse of verse 3 is what Yahweh promised would result, as we read in Deuteronomy 28, beginning of verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Curse shall be you in the city, and curse shall be uh, in you in the field. Curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young and your flock. Curse shall be... Uh, uh, Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall be while you go. All right, let's come up for air. I need to come up for air. This is, sounds like we're headed in a direction of literally no hope. Yet there is an underlying issue here that I think is important for us. If we, if we leave with nothing else today, um, and it's that the incompatibility of knowing God and idolatry. 
they're absolutely, uh, I'm sorry, in, uh, they're incompatible. If we know God, idolatry does not exist. And to put this positively, the cure to an adulterous heart will always be an intimate knowledge of God. My mission as a jail chaplain um, I've made is to make Christ known. In 1 John 5.20, the Apostle John writes this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Chris shared uh, John 17.3 in our first week. Uh, Jesus says, what is, what is eternal life? He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, he, he, only, uh, he, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The good news is we now have the surest way to gain the type of intimate knowledge that becomes the way idolatry is displaced, and that is by knowing Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews makes clear in the opening line of his book, that through prophets like Hosea, God spoke at many times. He spoke in various ways, but these last days he has spoken uh, spoken to us how? In his son, by his son. His literally, I think just literally says he has spoken by son, by Jesus Christ. Speaks loudly and clearly. And if you are a follower of Christ, the cure to idolatry is knowledge of God. And God makes this absolutely attainable through the pursuit of knowing his son. It's true of you if you're not a follower of Christ. God has, has the same means to offer you eternal life. It is by way of really knowing God by knowing his son, who God has provided to guarantee that we might know him. In the verses that follow in the book of Hebrews, it says how after Jesus made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the beginning and the end of all your needs for eternal life. He has made the way for you to have your sins forgiven and in the same way made it so that you can intimately know God and have eternal life, turn from life, a life of sin and idolatry to the, to the God who desires for you to know him. And the way to this intimate knowledge is simple, but it's not always easy. It's to repent. It's to turn from that. It's to turn as, as God is, he's calling on the people of Israel to do this, to turn, turn from this waywardness. He's shown them mercy and grace. He's shown them the way to know him, and he's calling upon them, come to me, know me, that you may have eternal life. And that's the same, it's the same question for us today. Are we willing to turn? Are we willing to repent? Begin our eternal life by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Now as we move on in the text, we'll see the accusations against the priesthood in verses 4 through 10. And then specific idolatrous worship in verses 11 through 14. Now as a quick note, I just, there's a, a ton of detail here. I'm just not going to be able to co- cover and unpack pack all of it. Um, but it's worthy of, of a lot of reflection. A lot of it is difficult text, but it's, it, it certainly has opened my eyes this week with regards to what it means to know God. Here you'll notice that the contention is against the priests, plural. Or, or I'm sorry, the priests, not plural, um, is singular. And what's likely in view here is the office of the priest. It can be difficult to read through that because it looks like there might be a priest in mind, but most likely he's talking about the priesthood, the, those community spiritual leaders that should be guiding the people away from idolatry. Instead, they're doing the opposite. It is the priests, they're culpable. They lack knowledge themselves. The priests have rejected knowing Yahweh, and themselves what? They're rejected. Their specific failure, which, begins, uh, which we see in verse 6 and 7, makes it clear that they have They've actually forgotten the law of God. 
And here the law, which is Torah in Hebrew, is far more than written instruction. It's not less than that. But it's, it's like what we have today. It's a love letter. It's, it's, it's God's gift to them that they can know him and have access to him. And he can be in their presence. He's graciously made a way to be present with them. Um, you know, as, as the, they build the golden calf, they call, they call Yahweh. Moses had, is there getting the instructions by how God might be present with them in the tabernacle. For the priests, though, and their primary function was to intercede, instruct the people away from sin, uh, um, make intercession for their sins in order that they might experience intimacy and know Yahweh. Um, they know Yahweh through, through the Torah. And his presence in the tabernacle, um, uh, he would guarantee his presence in the tabernacle. He would be with them. Uh, they instead have done what? They've become conduits to increase rebellion and sin. And then in verses 8 through 10, instead of serving the people to guide them out of sin, they have used their duties to feed their own sin, quite literally. And kind of help us understand what that means. The priests, they were called in the law to consume some of the sacrifices of the people in sacrificial worship. It's, that, that was part of what they would do. But they haven't done it in accordance with what God does. They've used it for greedy gain. They've actually so confused the worship of, of Yahweh with Baal that they've introduced practices such as as I said earlier, temple activities. And this becomes evident in verses 11 through 14. The effect to the people is idolatrous worship. Activities, <laughs> drunkenness, idol worship, divination, all the perversions that go with them becoming normal for Israel. And that's how idolatrous becomes so entrenched, even today. It just becomes normal. It just becomes commonplace. It just becomes that's what we do. It becomes something we learn to perpetuate to continue in rather than learn to purge. Now, the accusations against the people here uh, are, are relatively straightforward. Their unfaithful harlotry is bound up in them consulting idols and uh, div- diviners' wands. Here, the PG version of verse 12 invokes the lack of intimacy from what could literally be translated as from under God instead to do what? To take on these activities as part of their worship to be caught up in the things around them that are just unspeakable. Um, in some, active idolatry has replaced intimate knowledge of Yahweh. Or maybe a better way to put it, because they lack intimate knowledge of Yahweh, they've turned to idolatry. One quick note here is that in the beginning of verse 14, it says, I will not punish your daughters or your brides for their adulterous sin. And this is easily explained by the fact that the men, they likely promoted and demanded this activity, and they're the ones who are culpable. With that, come up for air one more time. You know, as I read through this passage, I was like, well, all right, how do I turn the corner on this? This is all dark. This is all um, difficult to read. The question, or, or the underlying fact here, again, is an intimate knowledge of God. An intimate knowledge of God that's, that, is, um, it, that is found in Jesus Christ. He has made a sure way of us knowing him. But the question that comes back to us, what kind of information do we seek? What, what sources of information do we seek? Who do we listen to? Are they ones that challenge our idolatry, challenge the things that lead us away from God? Or do we listen to the ones that simply reinforce, reinforce our status quo? And, the, and this is particularly in light of my own need, of, of more intimate need of, of Jesus Christ that dis, uh, displaces my idolatry heart. This, this is just what kept running my mind. What am, I, what am I taking in? What am I listening to? Who do I trust? And again, central to what 
is at issue here and within our own hearts is the solution, the cure, the antidote to idolatry and deadly sinful path is the intimate knowledge of God. And God has made that entirely available again through Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says that while no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Colossians 1.15 says that this Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God has unmistakably made a way for himself to be known. So while we no longer have a priesthood, we are nonetheless bombarded with voices. We ought to be discerning over what influences us. Now, this is an area of discernment. This is an area of freedom. You know, there's information out there. We're to be engaged in the marketplace. We're to be people who go out from these places and do mission. But the point is, is, is are these points of engaging in a way that we want to be conduits of the gospel? Or, or are these influencing our understanding of the gospel? And we need to, we need to be discerning in that place. But it's important for us to think soberly about, you know, again, what we choose in uh, or what we take in, what we choose to take in, the types of media that we do. Um, does, it, um, you know, does it draw it closer to an understanding and knowledge of our son, uh, his son, Jesus Christ, or does our intake even unwittingly feed our idolatry? Unlike the people land, we need to be careful uh, that who they proclaim as Jesus is Jesus, and it is Jesus who they desire to imitate. Now, looking at the final five, five verses of chapter 4, the frustration and hopelessness only, yes, increases in the outcome of blatant idolatry. God's hand is forced to give up on Israel and try to protect the innocent. Israel must not influence the people of Judah with their unfaithfulness. God prohibits the adulterous worship at the Israelite temples. Hosea warns against worship at Gilgal and against joining the worshipers at beth Avon. This is most likely Jacob's Bethel from Genesis 28. Um, they're swearing an oath like as the Lord lives is prohibited not because it is inherently, inherently wrong but because the people think God, Yahweh is the same divine being as, as Baal in other words they swear these oaths in a God who does not actually exist but then invoke the name of Yahweh as, as if he is that, those false gods and most alarming is that it effectively impossible for the stubborn people to change the people are so entrenched in the rebellion, they are, they are compared to a self-willed and obstinate heifer. Unlike a gentle lamb that knows the voice of their shepherd, so they can easily be led to enjoy the grass of a pleasant pasture. They're out of control, hopelessly determined to do whatever they want to do. Captivated by false religious ways around them, and functionally following Baalism, where they deeply love the wine and the prostitution at the temples. I was not going to use that word. I did. But it was bound up by the adulterous spirit of their day. The result of a people this hardened is that they will lack hope. As we see in verses 17 and 18, Israel here referred to as Ephraim is led alone to the consequences, to wall in their shameful ways. Yet even in these verses, amidst the absence of really any semblance of hope, we have good news. We have the workings of God who has committed to stand by what he has said. We have a God who has committed to bring about a promise that will extend to the whole world. Brothers and sisters, we are no different except that, thank God, thank Yahweh, he was so determined to make an end to idolatry, he sent to us the shepherd of our soul. And he has made a voice so clear to us that we might know him and we might hear him. 
In John chapter 10, Jesus identifies himself as that great shepherd whose voice his sheep will know and follow. Now, returning and concluding from the book of Hebrews, in the beginning of chapter 12, we read, therefore, I'm going to stop there. What do we ask when we see therefore? What's it there for? That word there, therefore, is there because the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 has explained how the faithful, the remnants such as Abraham and Moses, and while he's not mentioned, I would, I would lump Jose in with this, that though, he, that though commended through their faith, they did not receive what, uh, what was promised since God had provided something better for us. In other words, they had all anticipated a new Yahweh to be faithful to his promises. And in the case of Hosea, while chapter 4 seems hopeless, Hosea makes it clear he looked forward to Yahweh's faithfulness. Where the priesthood failed, Jesus became our, high, our, our faithful high priest. And we're turning back to finish from the therefore in verse 1 in, in uh, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. As we move to verse 2, guess what? We read how to run the race that cures our idolatry and sin by what? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, thank you for being patient. This was a heavy topic. The answer never changes. We look to Jesus. He is the promise keeper, Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the cure for our sin. It is only knowing him that will put an end to idolatry. It will only be through him that idolatry and sin will eventually be wiped out. In 1 John chapter 3, it says that when he comes, when we see him, when we see him as he is, sin will end. The good news is we can know him now. And he has guaranteed that we can know him. And that's good news that we get from Hosea chapter 4. Pray with me. God, thank you for what you've revealed through your prophet Hosea, God. Where there's seemingly no hope, God, for people all of us really, who stray, who are unfaithful, who do not seek you. You sought us. You made the sure way that we might know you, God. You are just, and that's a good thing. And yet, God, we we stand here uncondemned. We stand here as your children for the great love that you had had for us in Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that we move forward today as we wrestle through the sin and idolatry that still tempts us, knowing that the solution is to know you. And you've made that way sure. For it's in that name, the name above every name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.